of the themes we return to periodically on Hardly Working is the ways and means we use to orient ourselves to the world around us, the way we know things, and how we learn to act on our knowledge. We live in a scientific age. Some would say that the scientific method has assumed the place in our thinking that religion did in the Middle Ages, the unquestioned and unquestionable arbiter of truth. Science so dominates our thinking about the pursuit of truth that other non-scientific fields, like history, literature, and philosophy, have adapted its quantitative methods in an effort to incorporate both the methods and its prestige to lend an air of certainty to uncertain topics. In many instances, this approach has served to distort knowledge rather than advance it. Even within quantitative fields like economics, statistical methods and models sometimes cause researchers and practitioners to stumble. The models, it turns out, are unable to account adequately for contingency, the unknown unknowns that surround us and that tend to derail our expectations and plans. A prime example of this is the way virtually all the economic models miss the 2008 economic meltdown based on the assumption that housing prices would never fall and that the risk-sharing strategies used by the finance sector would protect it. Both the assumption and the strategies did not take into account the actual risks hidden in the housing and mortgage markets. Our guests today on Hardly Working are John Kay and Mervyn King, the authors of Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making Beyond the Numbers. Kay is an economist and fellow of St. John's College, Oxford, and has served as a senior economic advisor to the governments of the UK and Scotland. King, who sits in the House of Lords as Baron King of Lothbury, teaches at New York University and the London School of Economics. King also served as Governor of the Bank of England from 2003 to 2013, where he helped oversee the UK government's response to the financial crisis. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me here on Hardly Working. Pleasure to be with you. Well, it's wonderful to have you, and this is a terrific book and a terrific topic. As I was reading it, I remembered that I had actually written a piece for a website called Law and Liberty with the same title, Radical Uncertainty, which probably is what drew my attention to your book. It's an important topic, and I think in a technocratic age in which we we do expect a lot of control over our circumstances and an ability to predict the world around us, it's important to be reminded just how uncertain things are. So before we get into the book, what I'd like to do on the podcast is have authors talk a little bit about themselves to kind of share with us their own professional trajectories, key influences, why they got into the fields that they're in. So why don't we just start there? And John, I'll have you kick us off. Right. Both Mervyn and I started as academic economists in the 1970s. And rather curiously, Mervyn was at St. John's College, Cambridge. And I was at St. John's College, Oxford, but we met and we worked together on some public policy issues to do with tax. And we actually wrote a book together in 1979 called The British Tax System. So there's something very strange about us getting together 40 years later to write another joint book about a completely different subject. But then I went off and set up the Institute for Fiscal Studies which is a public finance-oriented think tank in the UK, which established a reputation for being kind of determinedly independent. That's something where I came from, non-ideological and critical of everything. One thing I discovered there was that one of my strengths, I think, 
was taking fairly complex economic ideas and putting them across to general audiences in a fairly simple way. And I, after a few years at Institute for Fiscal Studies, I thought there ought to be an audience for this kind of thinking, a commercial audience. So I set up an economic consultancy and I went to, to teach for a bit at London Business School. And that was the time of the time of Thatcherite revolution in the UK. And a lot of things were changing, particularly in areas like privatization, regulation, antitrust. So I got involved with them. After a few years doing that, I actually went back to Oxford for a time to set up new business school there in the late 90s. And a fairly short time back in academia, particularly the, with the frustrations of trying to set up a new institution in a very old university. One ran out of enthusiasm or capacity to go on pushing at that for very long. So since then, I've basically done what I like, and I've mainly focused on relatively popular writing, writing column for the Financial Times, writing several books, of which Radical Uncertainty is the latest. So I'm curious, John, when did you first realize that you had either a gift for or and or an interest in economics? When, when did that dawn on you? That's a story in itself. I was an undergraduate at Edinburgh University in Scotland, and I went there to read mathematics. Two of the characteristics of a traditional Scottish university are, one, that you're obliged to do some subjects that are distinct from your mainstream. And second, that the introductory course, or at least the introductory part of it, is delivered by the senior professor in the department. So I went uh, along to one of these courses, a course in economics as an outside subject, as they called it. thought this is fascinating, and it kind of combines my interest in politics with a capacity for mathematics, really. And I guess that's been true of economics as it has developed over, was developing then, has developed over the last 40 years. Although the mathematical input seems to have mostly increased and the political point element rather reduced, which is probably what has drawn me to away from academia and towards business and public policy. That in itself is an interesting example of one of the themes that we're going to be talking about today, which is contingency. You show up in a classroom, not by accident, but you know, not as the, your principal interest, and all of a sudden you find yourself diverted from your path and onto something that you find found more interesting. So, so Mervyn, tell us a little bit about yourself. So there's some similarities with, with John, which is why we wrote our first book together over 40 years ago and why we collaborated again today. At school, I was a mathematician. And I was admitted to Cambridge University in England on the basis of being a mathematician. But it was obvious to me that my real dream was to be a cosmologist. That's what fascinated me. And I was told I couldn't study that until I'd done a three-year first degree in natural sciences, which meant doing a great number of laboratory experiments. And the one thing that was absolutely crystal clear about my performance in science at high school was that I always came top in theory and bottom in the practical experiments. So the idea of having to do laboratory experiments for three years was just not a sensible option. 
So I searched around for a subject to which I could apply my mathematics. And like John, I've been interested in current affairs and become interested in the issues of economics. And I wrote to King's College, Cambridge, which was Maynard Keynes Old College, and they invited me for an interview and offered me a place. That's how I ended up there. The thing that happened at near the beginning of my time, which made me very enthusiastic about doing economics and staying there, was that an article appeared in the newspaper by Richard Stone, who was one of the professors at Cambridge, who had built probably the first computer model of the British economy. And it seemed to offer all kinds of possibilities. It was the use of mathematics, it was at the frontiers, and it appeared to tell us how the economy worked. And I suppose I spent the last 40 years realizing that it didn't tell us how the economy worked, because it's much more complex than a simple computer model would have us believe. But I did, when I graduated, join the project which Richard Stone was running, and that gave me my start in academic life. There were two young economists recruited around the same time to do that. One was Angus Deaton, who is at Princeton and won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, and the other was myself. So I too went to do graduate work in the United States, and there met Martin Feldstein, and some years later, he became president of the National Bureau of Economic Research. So the first half of my career was spent as an academic, largely in the UK, though part of it was in the US. But the whole time, I was in close touch with the National Bureau, and pretty much every summer went over there to take part in its summer institute. So I then at some point was given the opportunity to go to the Bank of England as, as the chief economist. And I intended to stay only two or three years and then go back to the London School of Economics where I was then teaching. But each time I tried to leave and planned to leave, something happened, which meant that I really ought to have stayed on in the bank. The first was that we left the exchange rate mechanism and my proposal for an inflation target was accepted and adopted. So I had to be there to try and make that work. And then a few years later, the Bank of England was made independent, which was a big surprise and a big shock. And the then governor, Eddie George, said, well, you can't leave now, can you? You've got to stay and make it work. So I did. And then the next time I was about to leave, I was asked if I would stay on to be governor. So I did that. And then I stayed 10 years as governor and finally found my freedom at the end of that in 2013. And just before I left, the bank organized a workshop. And John and I talked at that workshop and we talked with each other and we both realized that although we had been working in rather different areas for a while, we'd both quite independently come to the view that radical uncertainty was at the heart of what we felt was important in understanding either the financial crisis or the economy as a whole, or indeed understanding how business works. And so we decided to collaborate and write the book, and that's how we got to do that. That's a good jumping off point for our conversation. Again, fascinating history. Thank you for sharing that. I have never had a former governor of the Bank of England on before, and I doubt if I ever will again. So it's an honor to have you. Talk about what radical uncertainty is. I'll leave it to you two to decide who wants to go first on this, but 
walk through for listeners what radical uncertainty is and kind of what are the major themes that you're addressing around that topic in the book? If we go back 100 years, almost exactly 100 years, to 1921, in fact, you have two books published then by one American, one British, by amazingly different characters, Frank Knight in the U.S., and Maynard Keynes in the U.K. Knight's book is Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit. Keynes' is, is a, called A Treatise on Probability. And although the books were very different, they both had a common central argument, which is that probabilistic reasoning has been extended very widely. The previous 50 years have been the extension, really, of classical probability theory and statistics to a wide range of applications. And both authors argue that the attempt to characterize uncertainty in this way went too far. There were, they did both distinguished between risk, which they said could be described probabilistically, and uncertainty, which could not. These two power writers entered that argument. And for Knight, this was an explanation of how entrepreneurship was given opportunities by radical uncertainty and profit was the reward to navigating that radical uncertainty effectively. For Keynes, it was that the existence of such kind of uncertainty prevented the development of complete markets and essentially was, was a reason why classical macroeconomics equilibrium could not be reached. These were compelling arguments at the time, but actually Keynes and Knight lost the argument in the end, and they lost it. There were challenges. Curiously, the challenges equally came from their, within their own institutions, Cambridge, UK, where Frank Ramsey, contemporary of Keynes, an extraordinary polymath, but one who died at the age of 26, who knows what he might have done otherwise. But Ramsey argued that you could characterize any uncertainty probabilistically with the aid of subjective probabilities. And that argument was picked up in the United States at the University of Chicago and developed by Jimmy Savage and the young Milton Friedman. And they argued that you could characterize any uncertainty in this sort of way with the aid of subjective probabilities. So that by the 1960s, Milton Friedman could write, in effect, denouncing his predecessor as doyen of the Chicago School of Economics, Frank Knight, and said Knight made this distinction between risk and uncertainty. And Friedman went on to say, I shall not refer further to this distinction because I do not believe it is valid. We may treat people as if they applied probabilities to every conceivable risk. And it's hard to overstate how important that claim has been to the subsequent development of economics, most of all in financial markets, which is almost entirely built on that kind of assumption, and in modern macroeconomics, where rational expectations type models also rest on these sorts of arguments. But we think these arguments are wrong. Irvin, do you want to expand on that? Well, I think the one thing I would add is that the distinction between risk and uncertainty, between uncertainty that you can describe in terms of known probabilities, 
versus uncertainty that you cannot describe in that way, we think is fundamentally important. And we try to resurrect it. But we're trying to resurrect it with an important twist for two reasons. One is that what we distinguish in the book is not so much risk versus uncertainty, but what we call resolvable uncertainty versus radical uncertainty. Resolvable uncertainty is uncertainty that you can either describe in terms of probabilities, such as playing card games, tossing a coin, going to the casino, etc. But it's also uncertainty where the lack of knowledge, which creates the uncertainty in the first place, can be resolved by looking it up. We give the example of what is the capital of Pennsylvania. And people are asked this question, and some people have answers to it. They often get it wrong, but you can look it up. And it makes no sense to say, I think the probability that Philadelphia is the capital of Pennsylvania is 30% or some other number. It either is or it isn't, and it's easy to find out. But there are other kinds of uncertainties where there is no way of looking it up. They are unique events, typically. They are what we call mysteries rather than puzzles. And these mysteries may not have a clear-cut answer, even long after they've actually taken place. And we argue in the book that most of the important decisions that either we as individuals or businesses or we as communities in politics have to take are typically unique events, one-off events, for which there are no probabilities that you can apply to it, but where we know something about it and have to use our judgment. So the classic example we think of radical uncertainty is indeed COVID-19. Because we knew last year that there were things called pandemics, we could make statements, and indeed we made the statement in the book on page 40, that an epidemic of an infectious disease was likely resulting from a virus that does not yet exist. But it would have made absolutely no sense last year to have said, you know, I think the probability of a new pandemic emanating from Wuhan in China in December 2019 is 17% or 22% or any other number. There was no basis for that, no foundation for making that kind of statement. But there was a foundation for saying we think it is likely in a non-quantitative way that at some point we will confront a pandemic. And so the question is how we should we prepare ourselves for it? And I think one of the main themes of the book is that we have experienced a wave of bogus quantification in all sorts of policy areas where people are so keen to attach numbers to everything and indeed to justify a decision by pointing to a number which has been produced probably elsewhere, that they want numbers for everything. And what we have to remember is that there are some issues which can't be tackled in that way. And I think we start the book by giving, in many ways, the simplest example, but perhaps the most powerful, which was when President Obama had to decide whether or not to send the Navy SEALs into the compound in Abbottabad in Pakistan to try to capture or, or get rid of Osama bin Laden. And they knew that there was someone in that particular compound. The question was, is that person bin Laden or not? And after the intelligence failures in Iraq, in the second Iraq war, Congress had basically mandated the CIA 
when advising the president to frame their advice in a probabilistic form. So when Obama sat in the Situation Room, having to make his decision, the CIA advisors took it in turns to brief him, and one said, well, I think it's 80% certain that it's Bin Laden, and someone else said, well, I think it's 45% certain, and someone else said, no, my probability is 75%. And Obama himself, in an interview after this episode, said this was a, a, an example of where probabilities were confusing the issue rather than helping. Bin Laden was either in the compound or not. Simple, very simple example. It was either one or the other, but we didn't know. And the only honest answer was, we don't know whether he's there or not. But what Obama tried to do was to probe the intelligence officers to say, you know, why are you so confident that he's there? What's your evidence? What's the argument? To tease out the issues. What Obama did not want to do was to have to come to a judgment about the probability that Bin Laden was there. This was a qualitative issue. We knew something about it, but not enough to frame it as a probability. And I think that's characteristic of so many big decisions and why so many bad decisions in the past have been made by trying to turn the decision into something where there is a precise quantitative basis for that decision. You know, it's worth going back a moment, developing that example, to look at the reasons why Friedman's assertion that you can describe any kind of uncertainty probabilistically is wrong. And the question is, do these so-called subjective probabilities exist? And the argument for believing that they do says that people can order all kinds of bets and choose which they prefer to which they don't. And that makes kind of sense in the small world of games of cards, but it makes no sense in a larger world in which information is unequally distributed and in which problems are not very well defined. Uh, a classic illustration of the first point actually comes from Damon Runyon in Guys and Dolls, and Sky Masterson expresses it when he's played by Marlon Brando in the movie of Guys and Dolls. And he says, one day my father gave to me some great advice. It was one day someone is going to show you an unpack of cards with an unbroken seal on it. And he'll invite you to take a bet that he can make the jack of hearts jump out of it and squirt cider in your ear. And Brando goes on to say, son, do not take that bet. Because as sure as anything, uh, you're going to end up with an earful of cider. That's why you can't. It makes no sense to attach a probability to whether Pennsylvania, Philadelphia is the capital of Pennsylvania. You'd be very foolish ever to take a bet on a proposition like that, because there's a very high probability that the person on the other side of that bet knows more than you do. The second reason is that we're dealing typically in the worlds of business, finance, and politics with problems which are not very well defined. You may have seen very interesting, I think, work of Philip Tetlock on so-called super forecasting. People are good at finding people who are good at making forecasts. But in order to detect who's good at making forecasts, you have to answer, ask very specific questions with quantifiable answers, like how much will third quarter US GDP be below second quarter? Or will the Donbass of the region of the U Ukraine 
be given a special legal status by the end of 2020? These are examples of questions, open questions in his, his book at the moment. But actually, they're not really the questions to which you want to know the answer. The question which you want to know the answer is, will there be a relatively sharp recovery in the US over the rest of the year? Or what is actually going to happen in, Ukra- in the Ukraine? And these are questions which are not capable of being sufficiently precisely defined to have the kind of quantifiable answers that, that probabilities require. So I can tell this is going to be a very frustrating interview for me because you're both raising so many interesting questions so quickly that we'll scarcely have time to get into even a a fraction of them. But I did want to ask, I'm not an economist, I read, and one of the things that the Friedman School, to my understanding, has always emphasized is kind of to be careful about the pretense of knowledge, that people choose things on bases that we can't guess at. And what you're saying here suggests that they weren't actually willing to live with that idea in their own profession in terms of, it sounds to me like you're saying that they were pretending to knowledge about how the economy works that they didn't actually have. Yes. And and Friedman went to great lengths to argue that people optimize, and this was the sensible assumption to make in understanding how the world worked. And he said, well, of course, they may not say to themselves, I'm going home tonight to maximize my expected utility using my subjective probabilities. But people behave as if they did that. And the example he gave was of billiards players, where the players themselves didn't really understand Newtonian mechanics, when they played their shots on the table, they behaved as if they did. That was the example that he used. And he argued, therefore, we can assume that people optimize. And that has been the powerful assumption which has driven the view that economics is a more precise and quantifiable science than any other social science. But it's very misleading because both John and I, in our different careers, came to the realization outside academic life that people not only don't optimize, but they can't because we never have all the information that we would need in order to carry out these optimization calculations. Once you take that viewpoint, then you can start to think more deeply about how people make decisions under uncertainty and why they do that and why it is that human beings have evolved to be very different from computers. Many of the most talented economists that we know would think of themselves as able to carry out very sophisticated and difficult mathematical problems to solve them. They are puzzles. But what those individuals probably are less well-equipped to do is to cope with a rather ill-defined question, a mystery. But that's the sort of problem that we typically face in the real world. And that's why we think it's important to get away from the view that everything can be explained in terms of just optimizing behavior. Friedman's argument about the billiards players has a deeper insight in it, which he unfortunately, I think, didn't quite get to which is that if billiard players actually did optimize, 
all games would be tied and billiards would be a very uninteresting game either to play or to watch. It's because even the best billiard players don't quite succeed in optimizing that there are winners and losers at billiards. And that's actually the insight which Frank Knight had 50 years earlier, which was to say that entrepreneurs, other people will succeed by get, getting navigating this uncertain world slightly better than other people operating in the, in the same environment. And that's why you were absolutely right, Brett, to emphasize the paradox in the Chicago view of the world. Because the, on the one hand, they correctly emphasize Hayek's insight, which is that because the world is uncertain, we actually have to proceed by trial and error and experiment. And that's how we gain collective knowledge from imperfect knowledge. But actually, in a different set of models, the ones they used in, in finance and macroeconomics, they assumed people had a capacity to see and manage the future, which they don't have and couldn't have. That's fascinating. So talk a little bit about, I was really intrigued with this, and it's something I've read by other economists and other settings. The need to kind of not rely, obviously you're saying we can't rely exclusively on quantitative reasoning, mathematics, quantitative reasoning. And you go a little bit further than that in saying that narrative reasoning may be as good or better than quantitative reasoning. So talk about what narrative reasoning is and how it differs from mathematical reasoning. So when we talk to each other about the problems that we face, whether it's a business deciding on a, well, their future strategy, or whether it's a political decision, or whether in fact it's a, an economist trying to think about their next paper and their research strategy, we talk to each other about it. We talk to each other in terms of stories. I've always been struck by the fact that economists who write models and talk about optimizing behavior in practice in their own research, start by telling a story to other people. And if that story has some traction, then they'll think it through and then go away and write it down, both in words and in terms of mathematical symbols. But it's not the mathematics that drives the insight. It's telling stories, other people challenging your story and developing insights in that way. And the reason why that's so important is that whether it's in research or whether it's in practical decisions, we are confronted with unique one-off decisions for which there's no past precedent where you can say, ah, in the past 25 times out of 27, this was the right answer. Therefore, this is the probability that will apply in the future. The dealing with qualitative questions and telling stories is how individually we naturally want to do it and then we naturally communicate with other people and one of the things that we're not the first to do this but one of the things we emphasize in the book is the importance of collective intelligence to solve problems that is that what humans are very good at doing is working together to solve problems that would otherwise be extremely difficult that's in a sense what distinguishes us from other creatures on the planet and so narratives have a very important role to play. And we don't decry the use of models or the use of mathematics. They can be extremely important, very helpful. But in the end, once you've got those models or those mathematical 
formulations of a problem, you always need then to turn it back into a narrative in order to obtain the insights which are needed to tackle the particular problem with which you're confronted. You know, I can illustrate that with two stories, as it were, which made a huge impact on me in relation to this. One was getting involved as an expert witness in legal cases. Now, in both England and the United States, you have these standards of proof and burden of proof, which means that the the prosecution or the the plaintiff has to make a case. And you have a, a preponderance of the evidence in the US. In the UK, it's balance of probabilities, interest. And lawyers think these things are much the same thing, although that's not obvious. And then you have a beyond reasonable doubt standard for criminal case. Now, if you come to that with a kind of background we have in statistics and economics, you think, oh, that's straightforward. Balance of probabilities means 0.5. Beyond reasonable doubt means 0.95 or 0.99. And then you talk to lawyers and you discover it's not like that. It's not like that at all. And I started exploring, so what is it like? And what it is like is that if you're to make a legal case, you have to tell a story. You have to present a narrative. And the judge or the jury has to be convinced by that narrative. And for preponderance of the evidence, for balance of probabilities, they have to be satisfied that it's a consistent and coherent explanation of the evidence which they have, and that it's better than alternative explanations. And for beyond reasonable doubt, what that means in reality is that it has to be such a good explanation that there isn't another reasonable explanation that you could plausibly hold to. It's because they use narrative reasoning rather than probabilistic reasoning. And the attempts to use probabilistic reasoning have actually, rather as in Obama's situation room, caused more confusion than illumination. That's what we think narratively. Let's continue on. There's a couple of questions in that in that legal reasoning example as I was reading your book that I started thinking about. I mean, you use as one of your examples the O.J. Simpson trial. Tell us what you chalk up the failure to, and then I want to pose a different narrative and see what you think of it. Yeah, the quantitative reasoning aspect of this was that at the scene of Nicole's murder, there was blood found, which turned out to be a match for OJ's blood group. And the claim on the one hand was that this, since only one in numbers put it something like 7 million people, have this particular blood group, that was overwhelming evidence that it was Simpson who had been there. On the other hand, the defense argued that there are 40 million people in the Los Angeles area That means at least five or six of blood that is a match for O.J. Simpson's blood, and this can't possibly establish it beyond reasonable doubt. Now, both these arguments are unsatisfactory. There is a probabilistic way, a Bayesian way of framing the question, which is useful, which is to say, because a key fact, and the key fact which neither of these arguments recognizes, A key fact is that Nicole was O.J. Simpson's wife. And we know that most women who suffer murder or other acute violence suffer it at the hands of their partners. Now, that obviously isn't a reason, whatever the statistics, for locking up the husband every time a woman is murdered. 
And that's interesting in itself because it explains that you cannot rely on, on statistical reasoning alone. You need to tell a story, as it were, which is the argument we're presenting. But at the same time, if you ask the question, what is the probability that Nicole was murdered by someone who was not her husband, but happened to have the same DNA code as her husband, then you realize the probability of that is one in many millions. And that enables you to say that believing in that story is not something that could constitute a reasonable doubt. So used in the right way, probabilities are helpful. It's not a basis for convicting OJ of the murder, but it is a way of saying that there is a line of defense which was presented by the evidence which does not constitute a reasonable, a reasonable doubt. Probabilistic reason is useful if managed in the right way, but very misleading if managed in the wrong way, and it was managed in the wrong way in that case. And we talk about some English cases where the abuse was even, the abuse of this kind of reasoning was even more egregious than in that case. The successful defense which O.J. Simpson's legal team put out essentially spent a lot of time arguing that there was a narrative which was that the L.A. Police Department was largely white and discriminated against black defendants. And that story, that narrative, that was hanging over their defense, and they told that narrative, and it probably had a significant impact in the jury reaching their decision. So narratives are very much part and parcel of the way lawyers think about and behave in court as well as prior to the trial. When I was reading it, I was thinking my take on the jury's verdict was always that the prosecution made a defense in never addressing the narrative that was going on in some of the minds of some of the jurors which was the unfair prosecution of African-American men. And by, by failing to acknowledge this and to deal with it effectively, it didn't matter, in a sense, what the evidence was that was presented for his guilt, because that fundamental puzzle in the prosecution's case could, was never solved. So it's interesting how these narratives that you're talking about, narrative reasoning, is operating at different levels at different times. So this idea that human adaptation to circumstances operates in the backgrounds of our minds, kind of making these split-second assessments and decisions based on this flux of what's going on around us. And that analysis really operates in the forefront of the mind. It's really bearing down on particular data and breaking it down, analyzing it. Is that, a, is that a helpful way to think about this, this issue? That takes us into the whole world of behavioral economics, which we are rather critical of, to many people's surprise. And the reason we're critical is an interesting history in relation to our question of radical uncertainty. Because I talked earlier about how it was Friedman Savage et al. after the Second World War in the United States who developed what, what has become the dominant paradigm in economics for dealing with uncertainty, this subject of probabilities, expected, expected utility argument. And there was a famous conference in Paris in 1952 at which Friedman and Savage were there, so was Paul Samuelson, and the host was a French economist called Maurice Allais, 
himself would get a Nobel Prize in due course. So it's a pretty distinguished gathering. And Alay presented the people at the dinner party with a set of choices over uncertainty. And then at the end of the, the meal, he was able to explain to them that their choices betrayed that they were inconsistent in terms of the standard axioms of subjective utility. And they were pretty smart people, so it was quite disappointing in a sense. But what Alay visualized it as was not as a critique of them, but as a critique of this underlying concept of rationality. And that was how behavioral economics began. That really, the article that Alay wrote about that evening was the beginnings of behavioral economics. But when it was taken up in the 1970s by people like Kahneman and Tversky, it was interpreted as a critique not of the models economists were using, but of the people. So that if the world people don't follow economist models, that's not a fault of the models, it's a fault of the people. And they ought to be knocked on the head until they do what our models suppose them to do. Now, we don't buy into that. And this comes back to the way we think about uncertainty, mostly in terms of stories and not in terms of mathematics. And that's because dealing with ill-defined, ill-defined situations but with limited information, this is really the main tool we have for starting to cope with it. And it's not a matter of the bogus quantification, which Mervyn described going on in Obama's situation room, or which we see so much of in the financial sector and in other aspects of business. I spent a lot of time when I was doing consulting work. I once spent quite a lot of time helping to develop models for people in business. And I came after a bit to realize that people wanted these models not in order to help them make better decisions, but in order to enable them to justify the decisions which they'd, they'd really already made, either to people higher up in the organization, to give them a paper to take to the board, or to defend what they were doing to some regulator or other. That's just not the way we naturally think, and for good reasons. Many of what behavioral economists call biases we think are actually rational adaptations on the part of humans to radical uncertainty. And the reason why this is so important is that if you think about it, just step back for a moment, the community of behavioral economists has now identified several hundred biases or examples where behavior is just apparently random and doesn't fit to the maximization of expected utility hypothesis. But as John said, to describe all of these things as a failure of, of, of humans to be rational is completely bizarre, given that the human race has turned out to be the most successful race on the planet. How could we have been so successful if we are plagued with hundreds of biases and we are so bad at doing things which computers never make mistakes about? And that's led people to argue that as many decisions as possible should be given to computers rather than humans. This is a terrible misjudgment because what humans are very good at doing is confronting situations that have never arisen before and thinking about problems to which there is no mathematical answer. That's what we are good at doing. And we can use computers to help us do things 
that they are good at doing and we are maybe less good at doing, but confronting the big decisions and challenges that we face, that is a skill which humans have developed and we've evolved in ways that make us good at doing that, not at being like computers. If maximizing expected utility was the key to success, then we would have evolved to be much better at maximizing expected utility. So I suspect you're having this debate in the UK as well, but in the United States, there's a strong debate, big important debate going on about the use of computer algorithms to help judges in criminal matters make either decisions about releasing people on bail prior to trial or you know making decisions about risk in sentencing decisions so the computer is telling you how likely it is if you let this person loose before they're tried they're going to commit another crime or after they're convicted how long a sentence should they get based on their risk profile of committing another crime part of the argument goes that human beings are biased judges are not nearly as good at assessing risk as they think they are and that we're actually in the use of these algorithms eliminating or reducing the risk of either an unfair sentence or letting somebody go into the community that that might actually present a threat or vice versa so i'd like to hear you respond to that a little bit the use of data can be very helpful in making decisions but i think we ought to be skeptical about framing the problem in the form of the algorithm is going to be correct and human judges are biased I don't think that's a sensible way of doing it. The way the algorithms have been constructed reflects judgments made by other humans about the actual data that went into it and about whether the algorithm that seemed to work in the past would apply to the future. And we have you know, many examples where apparently good statistical explanations break down. So let me just give you two. In the attempt to regulate banks before the financial crisis, we had moved away from relying on the instinct or judgment of bank regulators and relied much more on very detailed quantitative regulations based on what people thought were the best scientific estimates of the risk of individual assets on a bank's balance sheet. That statistical approach failed totally in the financial crisis because the risk weights drawn from past data in no way corresponded to the risks that emerged when there was the eventuality of a financial crisis. The judgment that might have gone into decisions about the riskiness of the banking sector went out of the window and was replaced by a misleading quantitative calculation. And the second one is that I remember vividly Bob Hall at Stanford once said to people, he said, look, you keep telling me that I can't predict the stock market. So this is, this is nonsense, he said, with a gleam in his eye. And he ran regressions explaining the movement of the stock market over the previous 30 years. And he said, I can explain sort of 85% of the movements in the stock market with this small number of variables. Isn't that terrific? And big R squared. I can explain all this. 
That's what economics is good for. It tells you why the stock market moves around. And then when people said, oh, tremendous, now we can go and make some money, then Bob pointed out to them that this correlation over the past 30 years happened to be the product of a data search that said, can we find a set of variables that explain the actual movements of the stock market in the past 30 years? You cannot infer from that that you can predict stock market movements in the future. And indeed, they didn't. You can't do that. I think one ought to be very cautious about attaching some superiority to an apparent statistical regularity over asking the question, what is going on here? This is the question that John and I posed right through the book. What is going on here? If we have good reason to believe that judges are biased, then we should try to deal with questions of appointments to the judiciary and training of judges and helping them understand that maybe their judgments themselves are reflecting some conscious or unconscious bias. But just to say, let's replace them all by a formula, I think is, is a risky thing to do. Ideally, we want to combine the best of both, to look at the data from the past, and then to enable that to be used in a sensible way by the use of informed judgment. And go back to the example I gave earlier, that most women who are murdered are murdered by the domestic partner. Now, that is a good reason why the police should inquire into the, the whereabouts of the husband at the time when the woman was murdered. But it's not a possible reason for convicting the husband of the murder, of the murder without further and probably non-quantitative evidence. Justice actually has to be individual. There's a famous exposition of this, which is called the rodeo problem. And that says that there are a thousand seats in the rodeo, 500 tickets are sold, but there's a hole in the fence. And it turns out that the rodeo is packed, all thousand seats are occupied. The story then goes that the owner of the rodeo sues everyone, all thousand people who were at the rodeo for the cost of a ticket. And he wins all the cases on the balance of probabilities. Now, that's the pure statistical reasoning, like lock up the husband. But no one thinks either that that's what a court should decide or what it would decide. Justice has to be individual. And to say that we, we accept that justice has, will involve both type one and type two errors, convicting people who are innocent and letting free people who are, who are guilty, but we can't quantify it. There's an old slogan in English law, better that 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man should be convicted. But why 10 rather than 5 or 20 or 100? There's no possible scientific way of arriving at that judgment. Justice has to be individual to the particular case. And these kind of algorithms, as in the, the Simpson illustration I gave, these algorithms can be helpful in giving guidance to judges but they should absolutely not be the basis of a decision. To wrap us up here, I'd like you to both dilate on the question of, for our listeners, many of you who are working in public policy or finance or economics, where should they be looking to apply models as the best way of managing problems? And where should they be looking to either apply narratives or does it really seek this integration between data and narratives? 
what we would suggest is that you start off when confronted by a problem by asking the question, you know, what is going on here? And try to work out what are the big issues that you face? Are there key numbers that you really need to know something about? Think about orders of magnitude. Don't get sucked into an exercise in which either you or someone else has to construct a complex spreadsheet with thousands of numbers such that you end up having to make up most of them. One of my favorite stories in this area is what happened when AIDS began to spread in Southern Africa and the World Health Organization built detailed, complex, and very impressive demographic models for each of the countries in Southern Africa and linked them together because they wanted to ask, answer the question, how quickly will AIDS spread through Southern Africa? And fortunately, they invited Bob May, a very talented mathematician biologist, who at one stage was government scientific advisor in Britain. They invited him to go and look at the models and give advice. And he looked at the models, but then he realized actually the issue wasn't the model. The problem was that one of the key parameters that was used in any quantitative exercise to try to come to a view about how quickly AIDS would spread was a parameter which was called the average number of sexual contacts per person per year. And that parameter was fed into the, the models. And I, let's assume that the answer was 100 contacts a year. And what Bob May pointed out to them was, look, when you ask the question, what is going on here, you immediately realize that it makes an enormous difference whether that figure of 100 is 100 sexual contacts with the same person in a year or 100 contacts with 100 different people a year. And therefore, the demographic models were not of any value in themselves until you got to the bottom of this question of what was the pattern of sexual behavior that was likely to drive the spread of AIDS through Southern Africa. So he suggested they switch attention away from devoting lots of resources to a big, cumbersome set of models, and instead to do some research on sexual behavior patterns in Southern Africa, and that's what they did. And so that's really the way we should approach it. Models can be very helpful, but what they aren't is a substitute for thinking carefully about the nature of the problem, asking what's going on here, thinking about the information that you should be collecting in order to come to a judgment. That's what models can do. They can give you insights. They can guide you to the information that you need to collect. What they aren't is a tool where you just turn the handle and out comes the answer. Oddly, I think we may be making, we are making the same mistake in relation to understanding the COVID epidemic. I imagine you in the US also have the same discussion there is in the UK about what the R number is. What is the average number of people? that each infected person goes on to infect. But it makes a world of difference whether there's a population of people who have an R of 0.1 and an average and an R of 10, or even if the average R for that population as a whole is 0.9. You get completely different properties and completely different outcomes. That's part of the key issue in quantitative modeling, which is not to get quantitative predictions, but actually to understand what is going on here and the parameters that really matter to the outcome. The other use of models in economics, really, 
is to provide insights into what are essentially qualitative phenomena and to do that in a rigorous way. If you take some of the famous models in, in economics, from Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage to the model of a prisoner's dilemma or to Akerlof's Lemons models, take some great examples. The value of these models is that once you've learned these models, you think about the problems of trade, of free riding, and of markets with imperfect information in different ways in future. But they're not statements about trade and wine between England and Portugal, U.S. criminal justice, or what happens in the used car market. And to interpret them literally is to make a terrible mistake. Well, I want to thank you both, John and Mervyn, for being with me here today on Hardly Working. I I don't think we can overstate the importance. It sounds like an obscure issue, but it's so important to how we actually live, the way that we put the world together, whether that is simply an amalgamation of statistics and numbers or whether there's something deeper that requires our attention. So I I appreciate your work on this book. I recommend it to all listeners. Very accessible, an excellent read. And I thank you so much for, for writing it for us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.